With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast. But as you know, brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis to all the things you're talking about in football. I'm Ian McGarry, and with me, as always, is Duncan Castles. This is Friday's podcast. We're bringing you right up to date with what's going on uh, ahead of the weekend's fixtures across Europe. Um, Duncan, uh, we have information here in the transfer window that Mauricio Pochettino, who has been the subject of much speculation, um, given results that Tottenham Hotspur have had in the first six weeks of the season, um, players in the dressing room and sources close to them are telling us that Pochettino has been not himself, uh, in a direct quote from one of those sources, has been ghost-like and not there in terms of some of his uh, team meetings and tactical uh, meetings with the players as well. In the last month, uh, there was a distinct feeling that he is uh, emotionally um, being quite down or certainly depressed by what happened last season uh, in terms of defeat in the Champions League final. Uh, he himself, uh, in some press conferences so far this season, has admitted that he um, doesn't feel quite as confident or in control uh, of his squad that he has been in recent times and indeed has said that he needs time and maybe the club and the players need time to evolve in inverted commas. Now, that obviously is going to be a concerning factor, not just for the Spurs fans. It's certainly a concerning factor for the players who have noticed this change in his temperament. He has always been very upbeat, inspirational, and certainly has hidden any emotional fragility from his players until this moment. Um, but uh, in the context of the fact that he was favourite both to succeed um, uh, at Real Madrid in terms of when Santiago Solari uh, was sacked and obviously they brought in Zinedine Zidane instead uh, and also at Manchester United um, when Mourinho was sacked and instead they brought in Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. He was the man at the very top of his profession, the most wanted head coach in football uh, and then suddenly those options disappeared and in, now we can say, in retrospect, um, Tottenham almost reached the peak of European football uh, in winning the Champions League, but came out a quite disappointing second. He seems to me, Duncan, to be a man um, torn, uh, maybe in transition in terms of his career. He has uh, said as much in terms of being quite negative uh, in the way his press conferences have gone in the last few weeks as well. Um, he has also, as we can see, um, spoken about the dressing room and how they need to unite. Uh, 
What's your take on this? I mean, do we think that Pochettino is getting close to the edge? Because it is possible, obviously, that he might just, might, we have to stress that, choose to resign from Tottenham Hotspur and take some time out. Well, you mentioned resignation and I would, I would refer you back to a piece that um, Guillaume Balaguer, who's obviously very close to Maurizio Pochettino and wrote a book with him, um, did with the BBC towards the end of last season in which he very explicitly suggested that perhaps the answer for Pochettino and the quandary he was in at Tottenham was for him to leave at the end of last season and, and take a break from football. Um, and that will obviously have been well-sourced, will obviously have been checked with Pochettino before being written. Um, therefore, uh, I think you certainly tally that with um, that suggestion you have about resignation being on his mind as a possibility of something that's on his mind in response to where Tottenham are at the moment. The, the negativity um, that's being expressed by Pochettino in press conferences hasn't gone away. And we, we, I mean, we saw it for a large part of last season. Um, it was generally focused on um, pressuring Daniel Levy to spend in the transfer market um, last season. The, the, the tone of it and and the content was essentially, I've taken this team as far as I can with this squad of players. Um, we need better players in if we're going to uh, do something more and, and, and move the project on to a higher level. And it was, a, it was a clear challenge to Daniel Levy to support him in the summer transfer market, which he did. Um, however, he clearly didn't give um, Pochettino all that he wanted. We told you... Um, multiple times ahead of that window what Pochettino's requests were um, in terms of upgrading fullback, um, two central midfielders, um, a number 10 and a new forward. He didn't get all of those. He got a record signing in Tange and Dombele. Um, and he has reshaped the team with, um, with the players he's got in and with Part of that plan being using Harry Winks as a holding midfielder, something we also identified very early in the podcast for you, that um, Winks would be central to his new uh, midfield setup, but he wanted to have more pace, more speed uh, in the midfield and more technical quality, uh, as he felt that would be a way of improving performances. You've got to say that hasn't happened. Um, uh, the results haven't improved. They've won just twice so far this season. Um as we've said, there's been a great deal, a significant deal of misfortune in that. And I, and I think just two wins is somewhat deceptive in terms of uh, the quality of their play. But there's no question that they're not where they were um, last season, certainly in the first half of last season. Because remember, the, the results were actually pretty poor at the tail end of last season, with the exception of getting through to the Champions League final, albeit that, that being the best kind of exception you can have um, as a you know Premier League club of, of Tottenham's status. But you now have him talking not just about recruitment, he's talking about problems in the dressing room and problems in pre-season and time being lost in pre-season because of the way recruitment was done. Um, and talking about the players... Um, having a different agenda and, and a need to build togetherness um, 
and saying that we're working so hard to put everyone on the same page. Now, that's a different set of complaints, and it's, I think, a far more dangerous set of complaints because once you start talking about your dressing room uh, and suggesting that the, the players aren't all on the same page when it comes to um, achievements on the pitch and, and direction of travel on the pitch, you're not, your criticism there isn't simply of a chairman of the club who's not funding you. And you know that the argument he had that Levy should fund him was obviously a strong one and with merit and, and would be supported both by the players and by the fans and by, by the public in general. Once you start going after the players in that way, you, I think you take a risk. Uh, and, and I think what you're telling us um, that, that this commentary from Pochettino, coupled with his attitude or, or his demeanour around the training ground, has led um, for, to a certain degree of questioning over where he is as manager of the club is, is certainly an issue. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how, how it resolves itself because if Pochettino has made a decision or is, is tending towards a decision that it's time to leave Tottenham, if he's gone back to that state of mind he had during a period of last season, um, it's going to be harder for him to get that shift while he is employed by Tottenham because he there's a huge release clause in his contract and any club wanting to hire him will have to pay a significant tens of millions compensation package to Daniel Levy to secure him. Um, and, and clearly, if he was to be able to, to get, manufacture, achieve an exit from the club where that compensation compensation package wasn't required of a new employer, he'd have a, a broader choice of where he could manage next and, and also um, would be able to take something of a rest, potentially, um, if it wasn't going to be Real Madrid um, until the start of next season uh, to recharge his batteries and, and prepare for that new job. So it's, it's not, look, what you can sum up is not where Tottenham would like things to be with their manager at present. And it's not where a club which has fought so hard to retain Pochettino's services for so long would expect to be seeing themselves having made that, for by Tottenham standards, very significant investment in players at the manager's request during the summer. I look at the situation um, at Spurs now, Duncan, and I find it very difficult to see an easier quick resolution to this problem. Um, yes, there was a degree of success achieved last year, which they've um, not achieved before in, in reaching Champions League final. Um, but also there was significant investment in the summer um, in terms of players recruited. Um, but it's also the case, as you have pointed out, that in some of the positions where Pochettino himself had uh, specifically said we need to strengthen I full backs and another striker and possibly number 10 but I think that was partly because of the fear that Christian Eriksen might leave um, and obviously he has been retained for now um, that I, I can't see how there is going to be um, a solution between Pochettino and the players unless of course as we all know 
results turn around very quickly for them. Because what we have now, and what is certainly appears to be the case, and indeed in Pochettino's own words, there is a fracture now between the coaching staff and his dressing room, which he has addressed and he's trying to address and and redress in terms of finding um, answers to the problems. But as we both know from experience in football and experience of football people, it's much easier said than done to actually rectify a situation which has already developed and indeed taken root, which is clear from their form, from their results, and also from the attitudes and the information that we're hearing from inside the dressing room with regards to getting it right. And I just wonder if we're now in an endgame scenario with regards to Pochettino and Spurs. Five years he's been at the club, no trophies, definitely definitely progress in terms of the way they play football and their competitiveness in the Premier League and indeed in domestic competitions and European competitions. But I think as Pochettino himself was asking when he looked in the mirror last season, and I think what lots of people now are now asking the same question is, has he taken them as far as he can? Because it does seem like there's a, a watershed moment coming. Well, I think the thing with, with Maurizio Pochettino, having talked to people close to him through this whole period where he's been you know, one of the candidates to take one of the top jobs in football, um, be that Manchester United or Real Madrid, uh, he's been in that and that, had that status for you know, considerably over a year now. In fact, he was the, 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 the second strong candidate to become Manchester United manager when the job went to Jose Mourinho. And I know at that time, um, there was direct contact between Manchester United and Pochettino. And it, and it was, the job wasn't offered to him, but it was made clear that they were strongly interested in him. And the, what I was told by the people close to Pochettino at that time was he shied away from that job because he felt it was the wrong time to move there. He, um, he felt it was too big a jump uh, from the, you know, the, the restricted status of Tottenham to being in the, the complete highlight of the media that being Manchester United manager is where everything is scrutinised. He felt that the club was in a state where it needed major work from the top to fix the, the squad and to fix the playing style, which he's been proved, proven correct in his assessment. And he felt that he didn't have the experience of being a transfer market manager to be ready to go into a club and take on that role of, of being the guy who, was, who had a, a major say in recruitment at the club um, because the club's own recruitment staff well, left something to be desired. And so he, he, he basically stepped away from that opportunity with the, with the, the consideration that he could do more at Tottenham, he could improve his status in the game by remaining at Tottenham and these kind of offers would come back again if he continued to do well in his current job. And again, he was, he's been proven absolutely correct in that, in that he went from not just having Manchester United interest in him, he had Real Madrid wanting him to become the next manager, which is a level up um, for uh, a coach from a, from a background of having 
uh, both played and managed in the in La Liga previously. But I think that what that tells you is there's um, there's a degree of caution and a degree of calculation and a degree of um, indecision to a certain extent about Pochettino in that he can he can be swayed. And his his feelings on what on what he should do can change over a period of time. So we saw that last season, um, where things appeared to be set up for him to leave the club, and he ended up staying. So I I think because of that, you've got to be careful with Pochettino um, in saying you know you can have this information uh, coming from what he's saying publicly, and you can have this information from people uh, at the club saying. Um, his demeanour has changed and uh, he doesn't seem the same person as he was before. And, and that can all be correct, but we could see him changing his stance again um, because that has been his, his past trajectory, is to think about these things and, and not, to, um, not to rush into a uh, definitive decision in the area. He still has an exceptionally good squad at, at Tottenham, um, he still has all his capabilities as a coach, um, as a as a tactician. Um, they're not going to disappear. Um, you would say that you would expect them to be the strong favourites to finish third in this Premier League, and um, you'd also expect them to do well enough again in the Champions League. So, so things can change rapidly in football, particularly with a character like Pochettino. But um, they aren't good signs, that's for sure. Well, as everyone knows who listens to the podcast regularly, we have a kind of um, red, amber, green light type scenario when it comes to um, people in football and their ambitions. And uh, the red light has always been the standard of Antoine Scaredy Cat, who has made his move to Barcelona as well, um, giving him a green light. I think with, with Poch, Duncan, we're going to go amber right now in terms of um, what he thinks and believes he can achieve. Um, but I kind of suspect we'll be changing that light in the next month or so. Obviously, I could be proven wrong, but that's fine. Let's move on, though, to um, the kind of... Uh, I don't, I, I'm going to call it the soap opera because I really can't say anything else of Newcastle United and takeovers and managers and... Uh, the ownership of Mike Ashley because it seems that uh, never a week or day goes by that we have different um, information and stories and everything else. And of course, uh, in the last 24 hours, there have been huge uh, kind of reports claiming that Peter Kenyon, the former Manchester United and Chelsea chief executive, has come back for a second time with a um, consortium bid to take over uh, the Northeast Club. Now, it doesn't seem to me, Duncan, that it's a particularly credible bid, given that, it, according to reports, is that the money up front is less than half of what Mike Ashley values the club at. Um, but you've got information with regards to the uh, mechanics of the bid and indeed the... Um, if you like, uh, the courting of potential shareholders, which makes it look just a little bit even less likely than um, the £125 million up front, which Kenyon and his consortium have reportedly offered 
Yes. Um, I've been talking to people in the city who have been aware of Kenyon's interest in Newcastle and his attempts to raise cash for uh, many months, um, and the recent attempts to raise cash. And um, I think what's, what's emerged here is a document that, that Kenyon and his um, co-backers, um, an American group called GCAP, have been put it around potential investors in Newcastle United as a kind of um, sales prospectus. Their, their plan of how they would like to buy Newcastle United and um, how they can stabilise it as a top 10 club and um, triple the revenues and, and generally make everyone money out of the deal. Um, this, I'm, I'm told by people in the city, is extremely unusual. Um, very, very bizarre way of going about things. The numbers you've um, seen in the media about an initial 125 million payment to Mike Ashley for his shares and a further 175 million over three years are detailed in that document. That's the proposal. They're saying, we think we can buy the football club for that amount of money. Um, that's it. So it'd be a 300 million, a bit more um, with the, with interest added on the on 175 million in terms of buying the capital of Newcastle United, another 50 million of money to be injected into the club. Um, but these are just proposals. Uh, and this is essentially... It's not so different from putting a flyer around the houses, um, asking people whether they'd be interested in, in buying a share in a, a property development. Um, they've gone to high net worth individuals um, who would be able to put millions into the deal, but they're, they're essentially trying to build a consortium um, by proposing you buy in for a percentage of, what, of a deal we hope to do with Newcastle United's owner, Mike Ashley, to take over the club. Um, people in the city have seen the document and they, people who are very experienced in takeovers of football club, and they, they think it is extremely unlikely that this approach will succeed. Um, and, and the fact that it's gone public, that the document has gone public, is not going to help matters for them. Kenyon previously had tried to put a deal together with much more um, affluent investors in the United States. I'm told he did have buy-in from these sort of high-level investors, and that's when negotiations with, with Ashley started. Um, and we're talking over a year ago, those initial negotiations. Then I'm told that some of those investors backed out of the deal because they were afraid that Newcastle United were going to be relegated last season and they were worried that Rafa Benitez was going to be lost as manager, which indeed, indeed turn out. So then Kenya was essentially left without the money to do the deal, even though he didn't even have an agreement from Ashley to sell at that price. So this is an attempt to resurrect the deal by getting new money from less affluent individuals, putting it together in a big consortium and then buying a pre hoping you can buy a Premier League football club from Ashley on those terms that have been suggested. Interesting little detail um, I'm told is included in, those, in the documents is that if they were to succeed in buying Newcastle United, then Peter Kenyon would be given 5% of the equity in the football club. So at the valuation level of 300 million pounds that that document proposes for Newcastle United, um, Kenyon's own personal share would be worth an immediate 15 million for buying the football club. 
Um, one of the people he's involved with here is the, the head of GSEP Sports, um, Joseph de Grossa. They recently bought the um, Ligon Club um, Bordeaux, um, and he was interviewed and um, talked about why he felt investing in football clubs was a good idea. And, and he made this statement, you, you can buy a Major League Baseball team which costs $1 billion and is in a death spiral, or for a fraction of the price, own a storied club in Europe that's going to continue to grow and ultimately realise its value down the road. Um, also in this document, it talks about um, that they would, they would prioritise the, the hiring of a top head of recruitment um, because that would allow them to sell top talent for significant sums and reinvest in the team and make profit from uh, the venture. I think what you can see there is what you're talking about is an investment opportunity, um, a, a, a scheme that's designed to drag people in to buying a football club and the premise that they get a, you know, a small uh, percentage of the share capital and down the line they would make significant profits through dividends and probably eventually through selling the club. It's a really unusual structure to be trying to buy a Premier League football club. Um, it just that's not the way deals generally happen. You don't see these kind of brochures with plans of what, um, how a club is going to be managed down the line um, and basically get in touch with us and we'd like to discuss how much money you'd be able to put into the proposal. And, and I think, you know, talking to the people in, in the city who are experienced in the, the, these areas, the reason you don't sign, find these kind of brochures is um, it's not generally done that way and they think it's very unlikely that it's going to work um, trying to do it in that fashion. From the layman's point of view, Duncan, this seems like almost um, inviting people to join some kind of lottery syndicate where you simply say, um, we're going to invest some money in the lottery. Uh, it's going to be substantial and uh, the chances are that we might win but we might not, based on whether or not we get a good player we can sell. And uh, we invite you to invest your cash in us on the uh, chance basis that we can actually turn you up, you know, uh, Neymar or uh, Kylian Mbappe, which in Newcastle United, has to be said, has not been the case in the last few years. Um, seems to me that this is not a scheme which has much prospect of succeeding in terms of, because as we know, Newcastle fans are absolutely praying that Mike Ashley might be removed from ownership of their club. But this particular one, as a second attempt by Kenyon, does not seem to me to be one which they can put much faith in. Look, I think, again, talking to people who've been actively involved in attempts to buy Newcastle United, gone through the books as they stand, examined the, the way the club is managed um, and examined the scope for improving its performance, both from a sporting perspective and a financial pers perspective. They are clear that there is um, potential, big potential there, um, and that you could uh, take advantage of the, of the club having one of the biggest stadiums in, in, uh, in the Premier League, having a, a, you know, a huge and devoted support 
and put in a form, a more modern form of management um, from you know, the top level down, uh, be more intelligent with your recruitment, uh, also uh, increase the commercial revenue um, substantially. Um, there is, in their view, there is a project um, and a viable project. And I don't think it's too hard to imagine uh, with the right owners and with the right professionals in place at all levels of the football club, you can turn Newcastle United into a club that is on the same level as Wolves, Leicester City. Um, you know, that should not beyond, be beyond the realm of possibility. Um, however, you, you've got to get your people in place and you have to have the capital to do it. Um, and generally, I, you know, as I'm saying, generally when these takeovers happen, the money is in place to begin with. Um, and the money is usually in place and controlled by a small number of individuals or one entity, um, which makes it easier to manage the club down the line. When we do have a consortium type structure at Swansea City, um, again, uh, with primarily American uh, capital involved, um, it was not done in this fashion, but the, the end result is similar or has a it's, it's comparable. And we've seen what's happened with Swansea City. So it, it's, a, it's a complex way to fund and manage a football club, even if you manage to get that purchase in place. But it's a very, very odd way to try and put the money together to make a proposal to the current owner uh, that he sell, especially when there are other interested um, parties involved and have been for some substantial time. Um, who would do it in a more traditional fashion in terms of um, we want to buy the football club, what's the price? Right, we've got the capital here, um, let's go ahead and then and then we, uh, we change the structures and, and try and make the club perform better on the pitch and off the pitch. There's indeed strange goings on at uh, St James's Park on the basis that um, they are potentially one of the biggest football clubs in England. Um, with that obviously magnificent support base. Uh, however, Mike Ashley has always been a very difficult negotiator with regards to selling the club and will not obviously leave unless he gets the money he's already invested back. But from one troubled United to uh, another, Duncan, we saw uh, another substandard performance in the EFL Cup this week from Manchester United, who played at home to Rochdale, but had to depend on penalty kicks to go through um, that fixture. More questions being asked about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's future, obviously, but also um, the future of Paul Pogba uh, with regards to his um, poor performance and the fact he did not take a penalty, as well as um, the another muscular injury to a key player, which um, has been a point of reference in this season with regards to Solskjaer's training methods. Put together for us, Duncan, where Manchester United are, as they head into a crucial tie against Arsenal next Monday. Well, it was an interesting game of football to watch because Rochdale 
tried to play like a bit like Pep Guardiola would try to have a team play and were very insistent for long periods of the game in passing the ball um, in tight spaces, passing the ball from the back, taking big risks in their passing. Um, Do you think Pep actually went down to Rochdale and took a couple of training sessions? (laughs) (laughs) It'd be great if he did. It'd be interesting. It'd be interesting to know if he did, but it, I think it was partly fascinating watching the League One side trying to play that way because they did make a lot of errors in their passing and they took huge risks. And really, if they'd been playing against a more incisive team, you'd expect them to have been buried inside the first half. I mean, it was entertaining to watch, and all credit to them, but it kind of tells you why it's extremely hard to play Guardiola football with um, League One players. And, you know, you look at Rochdale's results going into that game. Um, they, this is their sequence prior to the match. Uh, Manchester Losing 2-0 to Manchester City's elite development squad uh, in, uh, in a cup match. Losing 6-0 um, to Darren Ferguson's Peterborough. Uh, drawing 1-1 with Lincoln City, who had a uh, temporary manager at the helm, losing 2-1 to Fleetwood, and then they go to Old Trafford and get a 1-1 draw with Oliver Solskjaer's uh, magical attacking United Way machine. Um, I think it's it was indicative, it was of the way United have been playing in that there were defensive lapses that allowed their opponents' chances. They had a lot of the ball, they did create a significant number of chances, but most of what they were doing was shooting from distance. Um, the one player who looked really dangerous was Mason Greenwood. And you have to say um, that just in, the, in a little bit of football, we've seen him play from the start against Astana and Rochdale, uh, lower-level opponents for sure. You can see why Solskjaer has such faith in his finishing ability. Um, because he he strikes off both feet and and hits from angles and runs into the right places to take shots. He looks like a player who's going to score a lot of goals through his career. And I think he's a guy who's probably going to extend, could extend Solskjaer's stay at the club um, because uh, he's, he's getting to that point where if he goes, for example, this weekend into the game against Arsenal, which he might well do because Anthony Martial and Marcus Rashford still um, carrying muscular injuries, and scores a goal, um, you could get that Marcus Rashford-type effect when Marcus Rashford broke into the Manchester United team. He's young and English. The buzz around him could be huge. And um, and Solskjaer will be credited for playing him and putting him in the team. And, and you know, you've seen this effect in, in English football uh, so often. But in terms of... the the way he actually managed that game, he just carried on playing the same system throughout. It was obviously not as effective as needed to be. I mean, Rochdale should be a team that Manchester United put away easily. But there was no change to system. There was was a change to personnel eventually. But um, no solution, real solution in terms of um, looking at what was happening in the game and posing different problems to Rochdale to, to finish them off. Another element that was interesting was, and, and this again, very populist move, um, intelligent from a PR perspective, was that uh, Solskjaer made Axel Tuanzebi captain 
for the match, which the Manchester United fans loved because to one of their academy players, you're signalling your faith in the player, um, you know, giving him the status of captain. Um, it's just a, a great publicity move. He was making just his seventh start for Manchester United. He's a young player. He is definitely talented. But the repercussions of putting him as captain in the team ahead of a number of more experienced Manchester United players. I think I'm particularly making him captain ahead of Paul Pogba, who Solskjaer has talked about potential of giving him the captaincy again. Um, just it, the ramifications of that, I think, are huge. And Pogba was extremely poor, disinterested, way off the mark in a game that he should have dominated. You know, you're talking about a player who was the most expensive footballer in the world going up against a team that was 17th in League One. That should be a match where he rolls the opponents over. Um, he contributed very little, got caught in possession. Some good passes, as ever there is with, with Pogba, but way, way off the standards they should be. The game goes to a penalty shootout and Paul Pogba doesn't take a penalty. Um, this is one of Manchester United's two designated penalty kick takers in, in normal time for part of the season, and he doesn't take a penalty. Um, I think with what he's done there, Solskjaer has really risked his relationship with Pogba. Um, and is that a relationship he can afford to take risks with, given the, the you know the paucity of of assets he has in midfield, and and the fact that Pogba is the principal creative weapon for Manchester United in, in, in midfield at present. So I think you're getting, you just, you, again, you're seeing um, the limitations of the manager, um, the naivety of some of his decisions. And it's, it's a path we've seen for, for several months at, at Manchester United, unfortunately. Was it a risk or was it a warning to Pogba? Duncan, I wonder, with regards um, to the status of the France midfielder going forward in Manchester United's team, because it was clearly a very, very deliberate um, decision on Sol Solskjaer's part um, with regards to giving Twanzebe the captaincy, knowing full well the potential consequences of Pogba's mood, attitude, whatever you want to call it, would be having been usurped by a youth player with seven appearances to his name. If it was a challenge, it backfired because Pogba was poor. And if it was a warning, then it seems to me that it also backfired because Pogba didn't respond in any positive way. Well, we, we know Pogba is a difficult individual to manage. And uh, we've seen what happened when Pogba was challenged in the past. Um, and his you know, decision was to double down on his attempts to, to leave the football club. Um, you know, he's, he's a hard footballer to deal with. But you know, Solskjaer managed to get Pogba back on board um, when he took over the club. Um, he managed to get him on board for this season. Um, when the club made the decision not to, to sell the player in the summer. Um, getting him on board when he took over the club was the simple part because Pogba was obviously desperate to demonstrate that the previous manager had been uh, responsible for his 
drop off in performance and that the club would be better off without that manager and wanted to see results improve. Once he'd grown out of that and got gone back to his normal uh, mental attitude, Pogba's performances dropped off and so did Manchester United. Um, I, I just don't think it's a risk someone like Solskjaer can take with, with someone like Pogba. And I think it's an unnecessary um, risk to take with someone like Pogba when you're in the circumstances he's in. Um, you know, we, we, uh, Solskjaer today has talked about how there'll be ups and downs in the way the team performs, that he never said it was going to be easier this season. He's emphasised that, that, that they've improved um, a lot defensively um, because they put most of the big money into Aaron Wan-Bissaka and Harry Maguire. He said that we don't concede many chances, we don't concede too many goals. I'm not sure they... I, I am sure they've improved defensively. Uh, they do have better players in defence. I'm not sure they've improved so much defensively. I mean, we are talking about a team that in eight games a season has only won three of them uh, in normal time. Um, they've conceded seven goals in eight matches. So it, it's it's not like they're, they're dominant defensively. He's also saying that going forward, they've, they've struggled a bit. And he's saying, but that's bad luck because of injuries to... Marcus Rashford and Anthony Martial. Now, we talked about this recently. Um, Solskjaer's message at the end of last season when he started to get injuries and when performances declined was once he had a pre-season in his players, it would be fine. He would make the players more robust. He'd make them fitter. They'd be able to run more. They'd be able to play the kind of football that he wanted to play. He's had that pre-season. Again, we have a rash of muscular injuries. We have Rashford, Martial, Luke Shaw, Pogba um, is, has had an ankle injury. Even against Rochdale, he plays Phil Jones. Phil Jones has to come off at half-time with a muscular injury. There is something wrong with the handling of players from a physical perspective at Manchester United. If you look at the, the number of injuries they've suffered since Solskjaer, took over as manager and how he's continued to have those injuries even when he's had that you know, special pre-season that was going to change so much from, from Manchester United and the, the high-intensity work they did in that pre-season. And as, as I said, we haven't even hit the difficult part of the season yet. Most of the early part of the campaign has been one match a week. So um, to, to get these injuries... Muscular injuries, and so not contact injuries, and muscular injuries means they, they've either um, put too much work into the players, they're running the players too hard, and players within the camp have complained that, that there is too much running involved in the training sessions at Manchester United, or he's not handling rotation properly, not judging when players need to be rested and or, and or putting players into the team too quickly uh, when, they're not, when there's a risk of of being injured. All of these things are part of being a modern manager. Um, if you can't handle your resources, the footballers, get them to a level where they can perform on the pitch with, uh, in the fashion you need because they're fit enough to do so. Um, and you can't even get them on the pitch. A fundamental part of, of that training regime isn't just to have them uh, running at high intensity 
as much as you'd like when they're on the pitch. It's to keep them on the pitch and to, and to prevent them from having injuries by judging when they should be in the team, when they should be rested, how much training they have to do. If you can't get that right, you give yourself a massive handicap. And the evidence suggests that Solskjaer isn't able to get that right. And he, he's already got a narrow squad because of the decisions he made in the summer. He's shown that he's not great tactically. He's shown he's not brilliant at, um, at uh, changing matches uh, while they're ongoing. So to then add on top of that, um, taking on or, or, or risking upsetting your most skillful player um, because you want to give the captaincy to an academy player because it goes down well with the support um, and maybe um, get some praise in the media. It, it just it just all points in the wrong direction for this manager. Well, for much of the last 20 years, Manchester United versus Arsenal was the key fixture of the Premier League season. It doesn't feel like that coming up on Monday Night Football. Um, uh, next week and so therefore it will be very interesting to see what transpires in terms of performance and result for both those clubs. We're going to move on to the quick fire round people and as you know we love to engage you, we want to hear your views and Duncan and I have decided to go for the very controversial legendary quick fire decision of basically giving you our own FIFA Pro 11 of last year, as you all know, um, FIFA um, designated and uh, their 11 best players uh, during the awards ceremony of this week. Um, I'm not sure that Duncan and I agree with FIFA and I'm not sure that even Duncan and I agree with each other in that case with regards to who should be in this 11. So what I would urge you to do is, because you know this is Friday's podcast, we've got Monday coming up, if you disagree, agree, or would like to make a comment upon our selections, get in touch and we will respond to you. So I'm going to hand it over to Duncan now to nominate his FIFA Team of the Year goalkeeper. Um, yeah, I think we should just say that um, uh, we want to talk about this again because it's been so controversial through the week and you've had this... this um, Incidents of, of Mo Salah um, deleting uh, Egypt from his social media bio as a response to not getting any votes from his home country in the, in the World Player of the Year, um, which he's uh, taken, it seems, great offence to. Um, and I think quite amusingly, the, the journalist from Egypt, um, when putting his vote in for uh, the best award, uh, not only did he not vote for Mohamed Salah, he decided to vote for Sadio Mane as his uh, top player of the year instead. Yet again, Duncan turns the quick fire round into the very slow fire round. I should ask <laughs> you, Duncan, for your goalkeeper, please, not your view on Mohamed Salah and Egypt voting. <laughs> uh, well, my goalkeeper would be Alison Becker. Lovely stuff. Me too. Let's move to right back. <laughs> I've, got, I've got two two options at right back. Um, no, you're not allowed two, you're allowed one. <laughs> two options that I'm split between. Um, Danny Alves, um, who's been the best right back in football for a long time uh, and underlined his quality by winning the Copa America with Brazil in the summer. But I think I'm going to go for Joshua Kimmich at Bayern Munich. Nice. Uh, who is, I think, as good as anyone 
in that position in, in terms of defensive and attacking qualities and um, his absence in the Champions League match against Liverpool, many people think was pivotal in, in Bayern exiting at that stage of the competition. Well, I'm disagreeing with you as um, previewed uh, previously. Uh, I'm going with terms Trent Arnold on Liverpool, who I think was sensational in both his defensive and attacking um, exploits for Liverpool in their Champions League campaign and indeed um, coming a very close second to Manchester City so we're going to have to agree to disagree on that one Duncan we don't have um, the uh, Kaiser Duck to give us a final opinion but please let's move on to our centre-backs yeah, Alexander-Arnold was sensationally targeted by every opponent as the wing to attack down against uh, <laughs> Liverpool last season so <laughs> Uh, one of my well, as I said, we agree to disagree. <laughs> one of my centre backs um, would be um, Virgil Van Dijk, um, obviously, um, uh, who many had as World Player of the Year. We explained on uh, the midweek podcast why that was probably incorrect, but I think he definitely deserves um, credit for the differences he's made in combination with Alisson and another Liverpool player who I'm going to have in this team. Um, and James Milner, obviously. Well, you know, he's only, he gets on your team, not mine, I'm afraid. <laughs> but I'm going to go so, for Matty De Ligt as um, my partner to Virgil van Dijk. Um, I thought he was outstanding um, for a player with such um, little experience in Champions League football. Um, I think he, obviously they would be the partnership in um, the Holland national team. I think De Ligt and Virgil van Dijk, for me, would be the FIFA Pro uh, choice in terms of two centre-backs. For me, I'm going to go for a finished article rather than a developing one as the other centre-back. Um, I don't think you can go too far wrong with picking the player who was voted the best centre-back in Italy last season, and that is Caladou Koulibaly. You know he was sent off last weekend, don't you? That was outside the voting period, Ian. Just saying, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> and so, to left-back, I wonder if we're going to agree on this one, Duncan, given our both, um, let's just say, patriotic uh, feelings towards um, the man known as Andy Robertson. Uh, well, we're not going to agree if you've got him in the team. I have, yes. Oh, OK, so I'm Robertson you're, and you're not. Let's go. I, I'm not Robertson because I've been watching him playing for Scotland. and um, That's not the voting period. I, I impeach you on that. I, last season as well. Last season as well. Unfortunately, he seems unable to repeat his Liverpool form when in a Scotland shirt. Um, well, the Scotland's totally rubbish. rubbish. Why, why are you even comparing? Oh, don't, don't, if, he's, if he's the best left back in the world, he should be the best. He can't run a. He can't run the entire team. <laughs> Jordi Alba, I have. Oh, oh Jordi, I do love Jordi. And it, you know he's almost Scottish with that surname, so. Well, he's almost Newcastle. <laughs> <laughs> right now, I have said four two three one, but Duncan um, informs me that FIFA go for four three three, so. Um, we're going to have a little bit of a kind of um, mishmash in midfield. But Duncan, I'm going to go for Frankie de Jong um, as my first midfield pick. Would you agree or disagree on that one? 
Yeah, I'd have De Jong in as one of the number eights in that um, midfield setup. And I'd have on the other side of the defensive midfielder, my defensive midfielder, I'd have Bernardo Silva. Defensive? Interesting. The other side of the defensive midfielder. But, he's, but Bernardo Silva's anything but defensive, in, in, uh, if anything. Right. His season was built upon being the opposite, being offensive. Yeah. That's why I said on the other side of the defensive midfielder. Oh, I see. Okay. okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. Um, okay, I'm going to go for Ivan Rakitic, who I think was outstanding for Barcelona last season um, in, as a central holding midfielder uh, ahead of De Ligt and uh, Van Dijk. I think he provides the kind of cover that most defenders dream of um, because he's everywhere and anywhere when the ball comes into a dangerous area. So um, so we've got Dion Rakitic and Bernardo Silva. Um, so we're looking at three up front now, Duncan. Um, do you so, name so you your... agree on Bernardo? You agree on Not Bernardo? really, no, but I'm going to let that one go. Uh, who would you rather have? I would, in, if it was going to be a 4-3-3, I would have Sadio Mane on the right because he's not defensive, he's attacking. And we score goals. Ah, this is that, you know, see, this is the way FIFA Pro does it. Instead of picking three midfielders, they shoehorn Eden Hazard into the team. As a, no, Hazard's not. It doesn't feature anywhere near my team. I know, so. but you you put Manny into your midfield when he's not a midfielder. No, he's not. But if he, if you're going four three three, then he has to be included because that's the way Liverpool play. Okay. Well, my three forwards, I think the three forwards are the easiest part of this team. I think it has to be Cristiano Ronaldo, it has to be Lionel Messi, no yep. arguments there, and you need a number nine, and I think that goes to Kylian Mbappe. Oh, I've got Sergio Aguero for my number nine. On the basis that Mbappe is young, still learning, um, hasn't achieved very much yet in football, with regards to his trophies, whereas Aguero has been outstanding over a number of years, as well as being outstanding for Manchester City in their domestic treble winning season. So I would definitely disagree with you on the number nine, straight nine, but I'd go for Messi, Cristiano and Manny as my sort of, uh, well, I said Manny would have to slip back, but Aguero would be my number nine. Okay, so you want to basically you want a four-two-three-one with. Um, That's what I said. I, I just started out by saying this. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you, you can't. You, uh, you know, a coaching brain is a coaching brain. <laughs> I, can, I, I can't pretend not to. You know, have my preferred system. FIFA are saying four-three-three just because they like to shoe on everyone in. I'm saying, well, that's not the case. Fair enough, but I'm, I'm confident my team beats you too. Do you know what? I'm just going to call everyone now and set that particular game up. <laughs> Despite the fact that five of them, Most of them were, were playing. playing on both sides. <laughs> Magnificent. Well, there you go. Um, that's the end of the Transfer Window podcast for this particular week. We hope you enjoyed all three of our episodes. Um, we will be back, of course, on Monday. Um, to bring you news and analysis of everything that's going on in football. 
um, if you want to continue the debate. And of course, we will gladly engage you in that. Then please go to at Transfer Podcast, which is our Twitter handle officially, at Duncan Castles and at Garbo SJ for us individually as well. Um, we shall return on Monday and we will say to you thanks for listening and we shall see you through the transfer window on Monday. Yeah.